Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, and we will be discussing with you everything wine-related, topics on tastings, trends, and all sorts of fun stuff going on in the world of wine. How are you today, Mark? Hey, Kim. Always good to talk wine. Absolutely. So today we have a number of very interesting topics to bring up with you. And the first one is what to do with an extra bit of wine that you have in a leftover bottle. And what can you do with that wine? Do you ever have any wine left over, Mark? Yeah, I never really have this problem. Only because <laughs> I, I kind of geeky. I don't like to save it. I like to just drink it. But I know you're the, the foodie. So there's a lot we can hit on that. First off, they were saying about tenderizing meat with the wine that's left over. And they're talking wine that's taste not tasting good to drink, correct? Is right. that the way you... Okay. So this was a fun little article that we found online. It was all about dealing with... Um, it was called life hacks. So little things that you can do to sort of improve your everyday life. And I thought this was kind of fun because it was what to do with extra wine that has been open for too long and it doesn't taste good to drink anymore. And one thing that I found interesting was that they were talking about wine that's spoiled a little bit, so started to turn to vinegar, which doesn't necessarily always happen when you have an open bottle of wine. So I think it's important to recognize the distinction between a wine that has oxidized and a wine that has started to turn to vinegar, which is two pretty separate things. Yes, a white wine, when it would oxidize, you think about you bite into an apple, it's white, and then oxygen gets to it and it turns brown. So that would have happen with your your white wines as well and it would it would taste a little different how would you mm -hmm. explain like an oxidized taste so it has a little bit of a a cooked kind of a flavor to it and we like to say that wine will always get to brown when it's really old so red wines will fade to like a brownish color and white wines will also kind of fade up to a brownish color so it it gets this sort of yeah old kind of cooked the the white wines tend to i think smell a little appley sometimes like their flavors will change and they just, you know, they're just not right. They don't have any fresh fruit anymore, which I think is really what we should be looking for in a in a yummy bottle of wine. You know, you want those fruity flavors. Yeah, the fruit proof profile totally changes. Mm -hmm. So it, what about when it says to tenderize your meat with this oxidized wine, do you feel that it changes the flavor of the meat in a, in a bad way? Not necessarily. I don't tend to use really old wine for my marinades, but I think that this is a pretty nice suggestion on how to use a bottle of wine that has pat gone past a little bit. So it's almost like you know, making a, you're kind of like substituting the wine for the vinegar that you would be using in a recipe. And I have a couple of great marinade recipes that do call for a significant amount of vinegar. And if you can swap out some of the vinegar in the recipe with a little bit of older wine, I really like the flavor that it brings to it. So kind of mixing and matching your flavors and then using herbs and using garlic and using onion and things like that. Is it helping with, with the acidity? It's supposed and to help with the tenderization of the meat. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I mean, I mean, I've tried this with I saw a recipe one time of port wine and uh, mm. steak and I okay. marinated and, and it was overpoweringly tasted like port. So, oh really? <laughs> so this makes me curious if you you know the flavors you would get. Yeah um, it does change it. I've got a great one that I use for chicken wings that is um, the recipe calls for I think just a little bit of red wine vinegar and a little bit of wine and I tend to you know change it up and I'm like oh let's throw in some balsamic and let's throw in a little bit of extra wine and, and stuff but it really you know it does add a significant amount of flavor. 
I, I think. Well, then they mentioned salad dressing, and they give a formula of 60% oil to 30% of wine, which would be the acid. So mm-hmm. do you go by that That formula? sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, that sounds about right. I've got a, a Greek salad recipe that uses lemon juice and red wine vinegar to make a, make a Greek salad dressing, and that seems to be pretty close to the percentages that that recipe is recommending. You know, you always want more oil than than vinegar in your dressing recipes, and, uh, and those proportions sound pretty right to me. So you think this is a common kitchen cooking technique to use? I think so. I know there's a lot of people that keep a couple open bottles in their kitchen for cooking. I tend to use my leftover wine for a lot of cooking too. It's, I, I don't hear too many people asking this question more of what to get when they're cooking For a fre- cooking. fresh one yeah correct. i get that question a lot too and it's what like, would you recommend if people say what should i get to cook with my usual answer for people is all right if you're looking for a white wine to cook with go with something dry and something fruity but stay away from sweet wines and stay away from oaky wines those really are the two things that i tell people to stay away from it's always interesting how we talk about this because when i get asked i always say an acidic wine because mm-hmm. i feel the acidity i'm no chef but i always had the feeling that the acidity for the food so i'll recommend usually a sauvignon blanc and and not the lowest tier sauvignon blanc but ten dollar bottle of sauvignon blanc yeah i think that's a really good rule of thumb usually when i recommend to people for cooking wines i'll say the same thing oh you want something with high acid to it so get that sauvignon blanc or you know use a pinot grigio or something from the south of france anything from italy usually is a pretty good bet to go with for a cooking wine i need you to explain this cooking they were saying in this article deglazing a pan with wine. Mm -hmm. What is deglazing? So when you're deglazing, what you are doing is using a liquid to get up all of the little cooked bits that are on the bottom of the pan. We call it fond. It's like when you've seared a piece of chicken or you've seared a piece of steak and then you take the meat out of the pan and you've got these little crispy bits um, that are full of flavor and they're not burned, but they're a little stuck to the bottom of the pan. So what you want to do is you want to use a liquid to get all those yummy flavors up from the bottom of the pan. And why sometimes it's important to use wine is because different flavors will dissolve in alcohol better than they'll dissolve in water. So sometimes you want to use something with some alcohol in it so that you can get the extra layers of flavor. Now, I thought what was interesting about this recommendation about using um, open old wine for deglazing is that often you'll hear the recommendation of if you wouldn't drink it, don't cook with it. So this kind of goes against that recommendation. But if you are looking for something to use in a recipe that says deglaze the pan with vinegar, then this might be a little bit of a better advice to follow. But um, So is that all when you deglaze it, mm-hmm. is all that evaporating? A lot of the alcohol so, does okay. evaporate. Yeah, I thought it was something and you, you're making a more of a liquid base and then you're using that as the liquid Not base. Not all of it evaporates, but, but most of it will. A recipe might say, you know, deglaze a pan with a cup of whatever liquid and then boil it down until it's at a half a cup or a third of a cup. So you're reducing to the level where not only are you evaporating most of the alcohol, but you're getting rid of a lot of the water content too. So you're concentrating a lot of those flavors. I thought this was a good article because it detailed specific things to do with food base. Whereas usually when you see a headline, what to do with leftover wine, they're telling you to make, you know, ice cubes out of it. (laughs) I've seen, you know, sangria. Yeah, sangria. And and, I mean, this I thought was very interesting the way they approached it. I don't know if it's these life, the hacker sites are pretty popular. I I mean, I think this is informational. I don't know how much of a hacker type thing (laughs) it is, but it was very interesting to read the uses. Like I said, I, I don't usually save wines to cook with. I know people who do that. They leave them on the counter and they experiment with different 
dishes. Hmm. Um, I guess if I was cooking as much as, as you, I would explore this a little bit more. And, but maybe what I will explore is the tenderizing of, of a meat. Is it always a, a like a beef that you tenderize? Can you do this with like a chicken? Or? Yeah, you can do it with chicken. You can? Um, do it with like a, well, like you a said pork chicken loin. Wings, yeah, so. so I do chicken. That's what we eat a lot of at home. So I have a lot of marinades for chicken, but you can certainly do it with um, even with lamb or or with pork or anything like that too. Yeah, so good ideas to, to use this leftover wine. You have to get Kim's leftover wine though because <laughs> I, I never have any. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. And our next subject will be reading a French wine label. This source was the Chronicle Herald. And this is one of the things, Kim, we both have uh, French wine education backgrounds, but it's very intimidating subject for people. So what's your first take on this? We talk about this a lot and trying to get people comfortable with the idea of buying wines that aren't necessarily labeled with the grape variety on it, which can be a little intimidating if you don't necessarily know what that bottle of wine is going to taste like. It can be hard to order something that you're completely unfamiliar with and take a risk. So we like to do a fair bit of educating the consumer on French wines, on Italian wines, on things that you might not necessarily have as your first go-to kind of bottle. French wines, the labels are by place or location, and they, they expect you to know by the place what they grow for a grape. So exactly. they went into detail about Burgundy and, and uh, Bordeaux and the types of grapes in each of those regions. So it's it's hard for me to explain this a lot as f- for people to understand the place and the pride they take in the, pl- the place or the terroir, as they say. Mm-hmm. It's a very different philosophy of looking at your wine growing. So if we talk about folks that are making wine in California, they're located in a specific area. And yes, they might have have a fair bit of pride of oh you know we our vineyard is in Napa or our Nap- our vineyard is in Sonoma and this is what makes our place unique but at the end of the day they are growing Cabernet they're growing Chardonnay they put a bigger emphasis on what the grape variety is that they are making their wine out of than necessarily the place that it comes from and the French have the complete opposite philosophy when it comes to what they are making so they first and foremost say I make Burgundy, I make Bordeaux, I make Vouvray. And the grape variety is more just the raw material that they are using to express the personality of the place that they come from. So this is a lot of information and we could talk for hours on each region, but let's focus on two that were mentioned. First off, Bordeaux. You walk in or store a restaurant list and you see Bordeaux. Let's talk about first what the red wines should contain for a grape. So the red wines of Bordeaux will be almost always primarily Merlot or Cabernet Sauvignon. Now there are some other red varieties that they can put in the blend, but overall those will be the um, the red grapes that that bottle is mostly made up of. Yeah, and there's always we're always told about five blending grapes. You get the Cab Merlot is the big guys, then you have uh, Cab Franc, Malbec. So I mean there's, there's a lot to look for in, in particular sides of the, the banks of the rivers, what they grow, but in general the reds, Cab, Sauv, and Merlot are the ones to look out for. And if you see a white Bordeaux, 
what would you assume is in the bottle, Kim? So those are mostly going to be Sauvignon Blanc and another grape variety called Semillon, which there are other places in the world that grow a fair bit of Semillon. There's a lot of it in Australia. There is some in California. But if you like Sauvignon Blanc from other places, um, you like that sort of dry, crisp, lots of citrusy, that's more the style of wine that you're going to get from a, a dry white Bordeaux. They're actually really delicious. And I'm a big, big fan of Sauvignon Blanc. So I will often search out a bottle of white Bordeaux because they're less familiar for people, but they're still really delicious. So I like to talk to people when I'm talking about, you know, styles of French wine that they might not necessarily be familiar with. I like to more talk about the styles than necessarily concentrate on the grape varieties that go into it. So maybe I'm a little yeah. more of that, you know, um, that French philosophy of don't necessarily pay so much attention to what the grapes are, but concentrate a little bit more of what is the typical style that you should be expecting from this bottle. And there's really great values and in, in white and red Bordeaux. I Absolutely. mean, you can get them from, you know, the $10 range, $15 range. I love to have three tiers of, of uh, price points on Bordeaux. Um, and one of the things on a label you see all the time is Chateau. And it's really just, what do you, I don't know what you think about it, Kim, but for me, it's just a, it's a house. It's a, it's a place that they love to be, take pride in showing you that picture on the label. So mm-hmm. a lot of the vineyards are the name Chateau something. And I think, think of the Chateau as the brand. We, we're so familiar with different branded bottles from California, from Australia, from New Zealand. Think of a Chateau bottled wine from Bordeaux as the exact same thing. It's not necessarily that it's one particular vineyard. You know, it might be a whole bunch of vineyards and that owner might have a whole bunch of money and they go out and buy some new vineyards. They can still call it the Chateau. So think of the Chateau as the brand name on that bottle. Now let's talk about Burgundy. You see a red Burgundy. What are you expecting? So Burgundy is going to be a little bit lighter in style. Red Burgundy is going to be made from Pinot Noir grapes. So if you are familiar with Pinots from Oregon and you want to give Burgundy a try, it's a good next step because style-wise, a lot of Burgundies are very similar to Pinots from Oregon. I'm sure there's a lot of Burgundian people who cringe at the fact that I would say that. Yeah, so not super heavy, but also not really fruity. There's not really a one-to-one comparison between grape varieties that are grown here versus grape varieties that are grown there. So yes, they might be using the same grapes, but the styles, again, are going to be slightly different. Many times people will ask, I need a red burgundy for cooking. Right. And you bring them to the Pinot Noir section and they freak out. Mm -hmm. Or Um, they see the price tag on that bottle of burgundy, like, I'm not going to spend $35 on a bottle to cook with. If you see that, uh, any Pinot Noir will do because that is the red grape. And let's talk about the whites that you would expect from Mm. Burgundy. So white Burgundy is going to be Chardonnay and not necessarily the big, buttery, oaky Chardonnay that we're familiar with from Napa, from Sonoma. It's It's more refined. There's oak on it, but it's very well integrated oak generally. They can be rich and creamy. They can be toasty and nutty. And it depends where you fall in your your price point again. So if you have a less expensive white burgundy, you know, they might not have all of those layers of toasty flavors. If you get a Chablis, they're not going to have any of those at all because those are generally unoaked and a a lighter, crisper, drier style. Going to be Chardonnay all the way. And Burgundy is a little hotter price point wise than Bordeaux. It's it's hard to find that real value mm-hmm. in that $10 range, which is almost impossible to find. Let's talk about Cru. You see the word Cru, C-R-U, mm-hmm. on a French wine label. I think that's pretty important to talk about what the significance of a Cru is. So when you are looking at a bottle of Burgundy and it says Grand Cru or Premier Cru, those are the top of the line for the Burgundies. So you generally can be assured that you're getting a better quality wine if you go 
with one of those than with just a basic. What's your take on on the cruise system? I like to explain it as it's a specific vineyard or a, or a plot of, of land that uh, the wine is from. So comparison to a United States, we have what's called the AVAs or areas. Um, it's it's special. It's a special term that you should pay attention to if you see that on a label. And again, we're going back to the significance of place and this emphasis that the French winemakers do put on the specialness of a particular plot of land. And it might even just be one single row in a vineyard. And a lot of places can be broken down to very, very small plots and very specific areas. And over hundreds of years, there's been a lot of experimentation that's gone on in a number of French vineyards. And they have determined exactly where the better spots are. And that's why the labeling can be so confusing is because they're trying to get to really these minute areas that have different, there's something different about them from one place to another place. And all of them have this sort of unique individuality to them that, that make them make them extra special. And I think the way they broke this article down, the way they approached it, it was excellent because they went per region. And you have to really look at each individual French region to understand what you're looking at right. on the label. So that was a great way they, they put this. Anything else you feel just in general, if you you see a French wine on the shelf or a wine list, what to look for? When it comes to sparkling wine, so most people are familiar with the style of Champagne. So Champagne is actually wine region in the north of France. And if a bottle of wine is going to say Champagne on it, it needs to be from this region. There are some California sparkling wines that still can call themselves Champagne. Those are not true Champagnes. But if we're talking about anything from Europe, anything from another part of the world, if it wants to call itself Champagne, it has to be from Champagne region. And those the grape varieties, again, are a little bit less important. You know, they're made from Chardonnay and they're made from Pinot Noir, but you rarely ever see that on the label. But what is important for the style of a champagne is its sweetness level. So that's what you'll be looking for on the label. So if it says Brut, that is the dry style. So there isn't going to be any noticeable sugar that your palate is going to pick up on. And then there are various other levels of sweetness. So extra dry has a little bit of sweetness to it, all the way down to really sweet ones, which are demi-sec. You'll see that on the label sometimes. Sometimes for a sweeter wine from France, you might see the word du, which is D-O-U-X, or mou, M-O-U-L-L-E-U-X. Those also mean that the bottle of wine is going to be sweet. So keep a lookout for those words. If you're looking for a drier wine and you see one of those words on the label, that should be your red flag that what's going to be in the bottle is going to be sweeter than you're really looking for. You talk about uh, cremants, which are sparkling wines mm. made from other areas Yum. of France. And I think that is a key thing to look for on yeah. a wine label. Looks French, uh, might have a chateau on it, but it's half the price or quarter of the right. price of a true champagne. So. I think that's one of those sort of hidden gems out there in the wine world is if you like bubbly wines and you, you like champagne, but you don't necessarily want to spend $40 on a bottle. If you're sticking to France, find a bottle of Cremant and they can be from all over the country. They can be from Bordeaux. They can be from the Loire Valley. They can be from Alsace. Really great bargains in sparkling wines. There are some fantastic ones under $20 that are out there. Same kind of bubble, sometimes made from the same grape varieties of champagne, but without the champagne price tag. In the wine world, people calling any sparkling wine champagne is probably one of the most common terms you hear. <laughs> and frustrating for those of us who yeah. are trying to explain the difference well, to people. Because usually I'm looking for a bottle of champagne, uh, you know, $5 or $10, right. and it, it never happens. You're talking minimum 
30 and up mm-hmm. for a true uh, champagne wine. You could talk about this for hours, but I feel it's such a value, especially the Bordeaux region. You can get bottles. They look really fancy, uh, $10, $15, and they taste phenomenal. It's a phenomenal value, but it's a different style. It so people should style. be aware of that. Yeah. So my main things for people when I'm talking to them about buying French wine are do a little bit of homework. Don't go in completely not knowing anything about them. Be familiar with the six or seven main regions and the styles that they produce. So again, kind of get the idea of, oh, I'm looking for this particular grape variety out of your head and look more for, okay, I like dry red wines. Where do I go? And knowing that, okay, Bordeaux, Rhone Valley, those produce red wines that are drier styles and might be something appealing to you. So no the biggies, no champagne, Bordeaux, Burgundy, and then the Loire Valley, the Rhone Valley. And then also I think people should look for wines from Alsace, which because they're bottled in the tall skinny flute bottles like German wines are, people automatically think, oh my goodness, these are going to be sweet because we're used to associating Riesling, Gewürztraminer, wines like that in those tall skinny bottles as wines with significant amounts of sugar in them. But Alsatian wines don't generally have a lot of sweetness to them. So those can be another area for people to explore for something a little bit different. I love the Alsatian wines too because it's the only region that labels they by the grape tell you type. what the grape yeah, is. So a lot of people tend to move to that and they make phenomenal Pinot Noir. We both mm-hmm. love the sparkling version of Pinot Noir from this area. And, and the other thing I always recommend, these French wines make great gift ideas because you bring them to somebody. What's the first thing you think of when you get a bottle? It's French. Um, it's like, ooh, this yeah, is fancy. It's fancy. <laughs> Or it maybe must this, have cost a bit of yeah, money. Yeah, cost something. Or this person knows something about wines. Right. I have no idea what this even says, yep. but it must be expensive. Like, wow. So I think take advantage of that. The, the cost is phenomenal. Explore some French wines and take your time and look at the label and see what you get out of it. Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We're your hosts, Mark and Kim. And today we want to talk a little bit about this new piece of wine technology. We're always kind of keeping our ears open for new ideas that people are coming up with for our wine preservation or for new ways to close wine up. So we've got corks and we've got natural corks and we've got fake corks and we've got screw caps. And today both of those topics kind of come together in the thing that we're going to be talking about. There's this wine system called a Coravin, which allows allows you to take a little bit of wine out of your bottle without necessarily opening it up. Mark, have you much experience with the Coravin? Yeah, I'm a huge gadget guy. You like and these I, things? I, I've been following this for years because there is a local inventor of this device. So it is a $200 gadget, but it has a needle and a gas attached to it. So the needle pierces the cork. So you take the foil off. You don't even actually have to take the foil off your wine and you pierce the cork with this needle. It draws the wine out and then it adds gas back into the wine bottle. So perfect for someone who just wants to draw a little bit, uh, restaurants for a glass pour or something like that. But is it worth $200 to an average wine drinker? I think it's pretty cool technology. I remember um, seeing it come and demoed to us probably, must be like 10 years ago now, so that we could see how it worked and uh, kind of get the word out about it. But it's interesting technology I think for people who do spend a lot of time collecting wines and want to hold on to their wines for a while and maybe not necessarily open up a whole bottle of something special or that want to follow the aging progression of bottles that they already have in their cellar. But I definitely see how this could be useful for restaurants that are looking to do higher end wines by the glass. But like you said, it is it is something that's a little bit pricey. Let's break down each, how each type of user could take advantage of this device. As a home wine consumer, you don't 
don't want to drink the whole bottle. This is a perfect way to preserve it. Or maybe you collect wine and you have 12 bottles in your cellar and every once in a while you want to randomly take a sample of how each mm-hmm. bottle is aging. I think that's perfect for that. If you have a collection like that, it's well worth paying $200 right. for this device. What do you think about home use? I think if you have a large enough cellar and you are interested in seeing how your wines are progressing or you want to just, you know, kind of take tastes of them every once in a while, sure. I mean, if, if you've got enough income that you are willing to spend it on developing a wine cellar, then I think that this could be a, a pretty valuable device to have. The real value I see for restaurants, the buy the glass, we always talk about this buy right. the glass, how you how you serve this, but you could just pierce any bottle you have on, on your list and draw a glass off anytime you want and keep it perfectly fresh. So you're guaranteed a good pour or a good uh, non-corked wine every time. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, but this, there was a recent article in the Washington Post that was talking about, okay, so we've got this cool new technology, you know, it pierces the cork, yada, yada, yada. What do we do about the 25% of wines that are now bottled under screw cap? It's like, okay, that's an interesting, it's an interesting concept because there are a lot of really fine wines out of Australia and New Zealand and now nice Oregon Pinots that are starting to be bottled without a cork under a screw cap. Yeah. How is the Coravin gonna? Coravin would gonna lose money if everything was screw cap That's because you right. can. So they invented another gadget. It's a screw <laughs> cap. You would take the screw cap off. You put a Coravin screw cap on that has a pierceable top. So now it becomes the same type of thing as a cork, where you can keep piercing it and drawing samples from it, which Pretty I think smart. is a great idea. And, and plus, now it's another device they're selling to you. <laughs> I don't know how much each cap went for, but it's just another accessory that they get you to buy and, and experiment with the wine, which I think is great. Well, this is a, a pretty interesting and clever way of dealing with the problem that the Coravin folks, you know, had landed on them. It's like, well, okay, so now we have a kind of wine that is bottled in a closure that your device can't do anything with. And they turned around and came up with it with this new idea. So it was pretty smart on their part. You were in sales. And I think this is the biggest thing I've seen lately is salespeople, when they're selling wine, they pull a bunch of bottles, they open them up and they run all around to get to all their accounts they can to sample this bottle while it's fresh. But now if they have one of these devices, they can take that bottle with them for for weeks and gradually just sample it. So I I think this was a huge improvement in wine sales for, for salespeople pushing wine. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine with Mark and Kim. We invite you to our Facebook page at The Wonderful World of Wine to look at these topics and leave us any feedback that you may have. Cheers. Cheers.